Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Well, I want to tell you some things about what I'm about to preach on that I feel that I just need to let you in on some of the things that I think through. <laughs> today, I can almost guarantee you that if a pastor said, hey, what am I going to preach on a Sunday? Today's text wouldn't be one of them. Um, and you're probably going to quickly kind of figure out kind of why. But here's one of the reasons we preach through books of the Bible here at First Baptist Church. Because it's my job to teach you the whole counsel of God's Word. I don't get to pick and choose what I, I preach on. I could have favorites, but this is a way that God keeps me to His Word. And so one of the things that, that I have to preach on are some very difficult subjects. Others we have to preach on are things that we may not understand. Other things are very difficult. We have to wrestle with those. And then there are sometimes things that we can just preach on that will help you better understand the Word of God when you read it just in your daily Bible reading. Today's text fix all those. Like it's just, it's, 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 it's a wonderful text. Praise God. It is just as much a part of the Word of God as any part else is. But I want to help you understand something that may be just a little confusing to a lot of people. We're going to be talking today on the subject of celibacy. So let me define celibacy for you. Celibacy is the state of abstaining from marriage and or sexual relations. Some might wonder, is celibacy really better than marriage? I mean, is it more spiritual to not get married, or is it more spiritual to refrain from sexual activity? Is it more spiritual to do that than to not? I mean, after all, there are nuns who take this vow. There are priests who take this vow. There are monks who take this vow. And so does that mean that the rest of us are less spiritual and that they're more holy? Or better yet, let me ask a different question. Is marriage really worth it? I mean, that's what's happening in our culture. People are waiting longer and longer to get married. So is marriage really worth all that stuff? Well, here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today, and Paul has been asked some questions by the church in Corinth. Some of them were concerning celibacy. Others were concerning marriage and other things. And they asked questions because the Corinthian church was mainly made up of those who were Gentiles. And the marital and ethical standards by which they lived were very similar to that of the Roman state. The Corinthians really wanted to know, here's what our culture says, and here's how we've been raised, but, but now that we're followers of Christ, what do we do? So Paul answers their questions in chapter 7 and other chapters. One thing I need you to know about chapter 7 is, is chapter 7 is like listening to one half of a phone call. You only hear the answers to the questions, but you really never get to hear the questions. So today, Paul gives an answer to a question. I would summarize that answer in one sentence. It's the sermon in a sentence, if you will. It's where we're headed this morning. That is simply this. Celibacy is a spiritual gift but not a superior gift. Celibacy is a spiritual gift, but not a superior gift. So I wonder if you would do this with me as we honor God's Word, because this is, again, where God is speaking. 
Would you yet again rise with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it's critical that you understand that before the next part. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. All the ladies in the house are like, amen. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another. Except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this by way of concession and not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. You may be seated. and May God bless his word. So here's what we're going to learn today. A couple of things about celibacy. First of all, Paul teaches us that celibacy is not proof of maturity. Celibacy is not proof of maturity. Look there in verse 1. Paul says these words. Now concerning the things you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Here's what was going on in the culture. They were saying, well, rather than struggle with all this sexual temptation all the time, why not just forget the whole thing and get away from the opposite sex and just live a celibate life? We would say, why, not, why don't we just all go live as monks or nuns? You realize that this attitude is commonly felt and held. This gave rise to a thing called monasticism in the Middle Ages. It's a very popular practice at that time. People withdrew from all contact, from all contact really with anybody. They viewed sex as something that was dirty, defiling, and unworthy. So they viewed the celibate state as a higher level of spirituality. So they moved out of their cultures and they built monasteries where men would live among themselves and, and women could live among themselves and that would remove them from all contact from the opposite sex, hoping to remove the struggle that were contained in those relationships. But I'm here today to tell you it didn't work. And it will never work. Monasticism proved to be a disaster because celibacy is not proof of maturity, and it does not lead to spiritual maturity. Paul starts by saying that celibacy and singleness is good. If you're not married, it is absolutely the best thing on planet earth for you not to touch a man or a woman sexually. Amen. But there's some cultural things you need to be aware of in Corinth, because it's possible that, that the... the the Jewish Christians were pressing the single Gentile Christians to be married. But the Gentile Christians, because of their experiences with all the debauchery and all the immorality that surrounded them, they said, you know what? It's better for us to remain single. Paul says, hey, it's good not to touch a woman. But it doesn't mean that you are more spiritual if you choose to go this route. Paul says it's good that a man doesn't touch a woman. That touch doesn't mean never to touch. 
but it means the use of intimate contact or sexual relations. There was tremendous influence of ascetics, and and an ascetic is a person whose life is characterized by self-discipline and abstention from all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. So these ascetics had moved into the church, and they were saying this. They were saying that marriage is not a deplorable state. But those who are really serious about their spiritual relationship, they're going to abstain from even marriage or even sex in marriage. Paul says it's not good to touch a woman. The word good there is is not the word that we would expect, which gives us a clue that Paul is saying something different than what we would expect. The, The normal word for good there, when Paul says it's not good, means something that's good by its very nature and beneficial in its effect. Paul uses another word, and the word means excellent. And that change helps us to really understand what Paul is saying. So so stick with me just for a moment. Paul is saying that they believed that they were superior spiritually. They were more excellent spiritually. They were better spiritually because they were not having sexual relations whether they were married or they were unmarried. Paul says, yes, it is good. It is so good that you're not having committing sexual immorality. But by choosing to be celibate, it does not mean that you're better than those who haven't chose to be celibate. There's absolutely no argument here for the superiority of celibacy. Celibacy, Paul says, is not proof of maturity. Then Paul says, secondly, Celibacy is not protection for morality. It's not protection for morality, verse 2. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. A couple of things there that you would probably know that we need to say. First, and I'm ashamed that I have to say this in my culture, but I have to say it. Marriage is only between a biological man and a biological woman. Period. Marriage is God's idea, it's his institution, and many have perverted it, but yet God says, if you're going to do my thing, you need to do it my way. Culture didn't invent marriage, God did. But then, Paul says, each man is to have his own wife, and a wife is to have her own husband. In other words, marriage has never been intended for more than one person at a time. So the modern movement for polygamy or polyamorous relationships is sinful. Paul says that because of immoralities, each person should get married. Immorality is the word for sexual immorality of any kind. That sin was so rampant in Roman society that it was even a stronger temptation for those who weren't married. So Paul is saying that choosing to be celibate In other words, choosing to be abstinent from sexual immorality doesn't protect you from the temptation. Just because you say, this is what I'm going to do, doesn't now mean that you aren't going to be tempted with the very thing you said you weren't going to do. As a matter of fact, you will probably struggle more if you make this proclamation. That's been seen on many a religious front especially those who forbid or are forbidden to be married in the church. How's that working out? Later, Paul tells them that if they're struggling in this area, it would be better to marry than burn with passion. Let me say something to you in context. 
Please don't take me out of context. I'm in the context of this message. But God's plan for sexual purity is not abstinence. What? God's plan for sexual purity is not abstinence. God's plan for sexual purity is sex within marriage. That's God's plan. But they took this a little too far. They took this against God's plan for, for really marriage. So then thirdly, Paul says this, celibacy is not proper in marriage. Celibacy is not proper in marriage. Look there in verse 3. The Bible says this, The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul wants them to know some things about marriage as well. Sex within marriage is a beautiful and holy thing. Many, including churches though, have taught that sex within marriage is only for procreation purposes. Well, it is true that that the Bible does say that sex was for procreation. Genesis 1.28 says, be fruitful and multiply. But can I tell you, the Bible also teaches that sex was created for pleasure. I'm not going to read it in our, in our sitting here, but you read Proverbs 5 or even read the book of Song of Solomon, you're going to figure it out that sex was meant to be kind of pleasurable. So we have to have this understanding. But yet also, this is something I want to push in on. The Bible also teaches that sex and marriage is really meant to be communication. Something happens when we have that within marriage that we know each other in a way that we would never know. That's why when the Bible says that when two people came together, that the man knew his wife, that's not a euphemism. Like, well, we don't want to use that word in church. No, he's used it elsewhere. He says, no, he knew her. Why does he say that? Because having sex within marriage is also one of the ways that we know each other in a way that we would have never known each other had we not done that. Paul tells that those who are married, celibacy is not proper within your marriage. Apparently, their belief of the superiority of abstinence led some to practice it within their own marriages. Some had set themselves apart for God while being married to such a degree that they refused to have sex with their partners because they thought that that was dirty. So then he gives them an explanation of the responsibility of intimacy. An explanation of the responsibility of intimacy. The husband is to fulfill his duty and the wife is to fulfill her duty. The word fulfill means that each partner is required to give what is really owed. It means a good will. It's benevolence. It's talking really about a giving back, a reciprocal recognition of each other's desires. Apparently, those who were ascetics were arguing that marriages ought to be dissolved and or those who were in marriages should abstain from intimacy in their marriage so that they could maintain holiness. Paul says, no, holiness is practiced when you have sex within marriage. There's a responsibility that each one has to each other in this matter. We're obligated to do this in marriage. It's our duty to each other. But then he gives the expectation of respect in intimacy. In verse 4, he says some things there. He says, listen, you don't have authority over your body, but your marital partner does. Paul says, the men probably would have stopped listening right there at that first part. 
Right, he says, yeah, he says, okay, I know you guys would have said this. Hey, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And the men would have checked out and took it home and said, hey, we're going to obey the Bible from now on. But that's not what's written, is it? And trust me, there are a lot of men who use this as a, as a club. And I'm telling you, it should never be. Because the Bible also says, hey, husband, your body's not your own. Your wife has authority over that. There's to be full equality and respect to intimacy. The husband is not the only one that matters. The wife matters a lot. When a couple makes a marriage covenant, they become one flesh and they're not their own. They're to die to their own needs and put the needs of their spouse ahead of their own. Not by demanding, not by rigidness, but in love and mutual respect. We must consider each other's emotional needs, their preferences, the physical needs, or the limitations. There must be respect. And sometimes people take these verses and use them to demand their rights. And I'm telling you, it's so wrong. Sexual love is not to be a weapon to fight with, but a tool to build with. He then gives the exception of restraint and intimacy. He says there, now stop depriving one another except. He uses a strong word, deprive. It means to rob each other, to defraud one another. He says that those who are advocating celibacy when marriage are wrong because it is sinful to steal from each other concerning this. In marriage, the sexual union and activity is the expectation and the desire, yet there's one exception. Paul says it's okay to refrain from sexual activity, but it's only for a set period of time and for a very special occasion, why he says it's for prayer or seeking the Lord. You're going to find that this is throughout Scripture. When, when, when couples or people set themselves toward the Lord to seek Him in a very holy way, Often it's paired with fasting. Not only do they fast from food, but they fast from relations. We see when the Israelites were preparing to meet with God in Exodus chapter 19, the Bible says these words, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also trust in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them tomorrow, uh, today and tomorrow. And have them wash their garments and have them ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. But you shall set up boundaries for the people all around saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall certainly be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall certainly be stoned or shot through. Whether animal or person, the violator shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up on the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people, consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he also said to the people, listen, be ready for the third day and do not go near a woman. There are times, Paul says, when we refrain from sexual activity for setting ourselves apart for consecration before the Lord. That's the exception, though. Abstinence was not normal or even common consent. But when this exception was applied, know that it says it's only for a time. It's not left open-ended. Why? Because Paul says that after this short period of time is over, you are to come back together again because Satan will begin to tempt you if you don't. It's interesting here, as I study the text, I found something interesting I never discovered before. 
But when he says there in verse 5, he says, come together again so that Satan will not tempt you. In the Greek, there's a definite article before the word Satan. In other words, it could be translated this way. So come together again so that the Satan will not tempt you. That, that's interesting. It's interesting because the point is, is that Satan is very real. The word means adversary, opponent, or enemy. So he's saying that if you don't come together again after that period of time, your adversary, your enemy, the one who seeks to destroy your marriage is going to tempt you to do something stupid. Satan is going to work overtime in tempting one of you with sexual immorality if you don't come together. But you see, not only do we have the problem of Satan to deal with when we don't come together, Paul also says we have the problem of our flesh. Because he says Satan will tempt you because of your what? Your lack of self-control. Where there is a prolonged period of abstinence, temptation will come because of the lack of self-control for some. The sexual drive, Paul is saying, is very real, and it's very strong, and the enemy will take that and use your own weakness against you to set you up for failure. So Paul says, listen, celibacy is not proper within marriage. But then lastly, he says this, celibacy is a provision of the master. Celibacy is a provision of the master. Look in verse 6. We got to do a few things here. But I say this by way of concession and not of command. So to the average Bible reader, or those listening by way of radio or even online today, you may say, does that mean that what Paul wrote here is not inspired? Does that mean that this doesn't carry the same authority as the rest of the Bible when Paul says, I say this by way of concession, not way of command. Is that what he really means? Well, let's do what I want you to do, always to take text within their context and let the Bible explain the Bible. Best thing to do. So let's look. He uses this language again in verse 12. He says, but to the rest I say, not the Lord. Interesting. Then he uses it again in verse 25. He says, now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give my opinion." And then again, down in verse 40, he says, but in my opinion, she is happier, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. This, this is interesting. I want you to pay attention very carefully. What Paul is saying is that he's only going to speak things that have been given and expressed through the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that he basically says, as an apostle, he has no knowledge that Jesus Christ has ever commanded the things that he is teaching. He's saying that Jesus never spoke specifically on this issue. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul is saying that this is now what I'm saying. He's not saying I'm giving, that Jesus gave this command. And he's saying that it's not my command, but this is a part of what the Holy Spirit has done. In other words, Paul is saying what Peter would say. That no scripture is given by private interpretation. That all men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, Jesus Christ didn't say this specifically. But through the power of the Holy Spirit of God, this is still what God desires for us to live out by. Just, just need to know that. Just basic Bible interpretation for us. But then what is he saying? He's saying, this is his thing. I wish that all men were even as I am myself. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and one in another. 
We know from studying the life of Paul that Paul was not married. Paul was celibate, and that worked for him. But the reason that it works for Paul is critical. You cannot choose to be celibate. You have to be called. Let me, let me, let me help you with something. Paul says celibacy is a gift from God. It's his gift from God. That word gift is the word charismatic. It means a grace gift. Paul speaks of these in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. He lays out a long list of gifts. Here he's giving another gift from God. We don't often talk about the spiritual gift of celibacy, do we? You don't really hear that one talked about, but Paul does. He's saying it is a spiritual gift. And really what Paul is saying is, is this is really not a matter if you're holy or you're not holy. This is a matter of, of giftedness. And we should use and celebrate those who are celibate just like we use and celebrate those who have other gifts. It's really about gifting. If a man or woman has been given by God the grace to be celibate, then he should remain celibate. But if not, he should get married. Matthew chapter 19, verses 10 through 12, Jesus speaks of this as well. The disciples were bringing up kind of a similar question, and Jesus was teaching on marriage, and it was a little hard for them. And they were saying, well, man, if that's what it's like to be married, then, man, everybody should just not get married. This just keeps coming up in church life. Jesus says, if the relationship to the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry, the disciples said. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only to those whom it has been given. In other words, it has to be a gift that has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by people, and there are all eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept this, let him accept this. In other words, let me tell you what we're saying today. Just as it is wrong to misuse a gift that we have, it is also wrong to try to use a gift we don't have. So if I have the gift of preaching or teaching, it is wrong for me to abuse that gift or try to use it in a way that's not, it's not meant to be. The same can be true for trying to use a gift that you don't have. If you are trying to practice the gift of celibacy, and you don't have it, you will be a very frustrated person. And we see this in churches all across the world, especially in certain denominations. Singleness, can I tell you, is not second class. Singleness is a gift, and it should be celebrated just as any other gift. But celibacy is a spiritual gift. It's not the superior gift. Oscar, if you guys would come. Here's a few closing thoughts I just want to kind of throw out there to you. My preaching professor in my class on 1 Corinthians, we came to the end of this chapter, and I can remember him telling me. He said, I'm going to tell you boys the way I see it from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He said, here's my summaration. That's what he said, summaration. He said, single people are not, live, are not called to live X-rated lives. And married people are not called to live G-rated lives. That's just plain out there, right? But see, 
Maybe you're single and you're refraining from sin. And you're saying, I know I'm not called to celibacy, so why hasn't God brought me a spouse? And can I tell you today, my heart hurts with you. I personally don't know that. I met my wife when I was 17 and we were married at 18 and, and I have always had her in my life. I don't know your pain. I really don't. But I can hurt with you and so I guess maybe today one of the responses that I would say is, is if that's you, would you come and let me pray with you and let me try to walk with you and help shoulder some of your pain as we seek God's person for you. But then again, maybe you're married and maybe today you just haven't been faithful. Maybe you haven't been faithful in your sexual relationship with your spouse, but maybe you've broken your vow and had them with other people. And, and today I want you to know that man, this altar is for those who need forgiveness. I'm not trying to be coy and I'm not trying to be funny. I want you to know when you look at this altar, you're not going to see stones here. There's no stones for anybody to pick up and throw at you. But there is, there is a cross and it's right here. Because there's grace for those who have sinned, amen? Maybe today you need to receive that forgiveness. Lastly, I would say to you, if you've been called to celibacy, I want you to know that you are a precious gift to the body of Christ. And no matter how our culture may have made you feel, you are not weird and you are not wrong. You are as right as God's Word is. And you need to know that it's okay if that's what you've been called to. So I wonder if you'd stand with me right now as we pray. Can I tell you the, the truth this morning? Not that I haven't been. You and I can't do anything that this text has said without Jesus. I can't be celibate without Jesus. And I can't fulfill my marriage vows without Jesus. So I just invite you, any and all, to come to Jesus today. If you've never received His forgiveness of all your sin and you would like to today, this altar will be open. But let's pray. Father, I pray that in the mighty name of Jesus, that you would take your word and you would speak to your people and they would respond however you would lead them. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.